This is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson here with Adam Kempinar, and we're trying something a little different here with a marathon, independent marathon review. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually these are embedded within the show proper, but we're going to offer this as a separate download. We'll see how it goes. To my mind, this is why we do marathons, Adam. This movie that we're going to talk about. I'm just going to start right out with that. The general idea behind our film spotting marathons is to take a deep dive into a vaunted artist's filmography or a regional cinema or a specific genre, something heralded but relatively new to us and get a better understanding of the work. What I'm always hoping for beyond that, though, because these are so well-respected, is to have one of those foundational film-going experiences, an encounter with a movie and the artist behind it that reaffirms my love for the art form and whets my appetite for more. Pather Panchali was that sort of encounter, in a way even more so than the films of Robert Bresson, an earlier marathon subject. And I say that because I had seen a few Bresson films before. But Indian filmmaker Satyajit Ray was completely new to me up until a few weeks ago when I sat down to watch Pather Panchali. He's certainly one of those cinematic figures who has long haunted me. Back when I was in middle school and started poring over intro to film textbooks, it was always he, Ingmar Bergman, and Akira Kurosawa, for some reason, who were held up as these paragons of world cinema. Bergman, Kurosawa, I went on to explore a bit. For whatever reason, not Ray. Both previous film spotting marathon subjects. There you go. Makes Mm -hmm. sense. We're going to start this marathon appropriately with Ray's first film and the first in his Opu trilogy, which charts the childhood and maturation of a boy named Opu in rural Bengal in the 1920s. The trilogy is based on a well-known serial novel in India, Pather Panchali, itself came out in 1955. This was such a powerhouse experience for me, Adam, that when we get around to doing our top five marathon movies list, and I'm sure at some point we'll get there, Pather Panchali is going to be up there for me. But before I go on to detail my praise, I first need to find out just if you were similarly enthralled by the film. I was, and it's fitting that you would put it in that context of maybe making a list someday of top five marathon movies, because my first note here is that it's maybe the closest marathon experience I've had to the film that probably was my greatest marathon experience, which was way back in 2006, our animation marathon, talked about it a few times over the years. I think it's now officially in the Pantheon, Grave of the Fireflies. Sure. Similar to that and appropriate to say that because they're similar movies in that they're both very much about poverty and they're also about a brother and sister who are very close to each other. Now, Pather Panchali didn't devastate me or delight me quite as much as Fireflies, but this is a case, Josh, where my insistence on going into movies generally, knowing as little as possible, did give me a pretty nice stomach punch watching the last 30 minutes just last night. There's a slight hint about halfway through. There's a throwaway line that's something tragic. We won't give away too much, but something tragic could happen to one of the characters in the same way that Hollywood movies sometimes will foreshadow a tragedy where a character might have a cough earlier in the film and then a little bit later you find out that they're deathly ill. Right. This is also a slice-of-life movie. It's not heavy on plot, so I was sort of getting the sense of foreboding that it might need some finality, might need some closure, and a lot of times, of course, a tragedy can add that. And yet, I wasn't prepared for the emotion of it. And I wasn't prepared for just how hopeless, and I don't know if this is going to sell the movie well enough, maybe you'll do better than me, Josh, but just how hopeless things would get for this family. Because one of the aspects of this movie I really appreciate was how it captured the rhythms 
of life. The ebbs and flows. Seasons change. The elderly auntie who steals things from the kitchen and annoys the mother runs off periodically only to eventually return. There's a certain repetition. There's an order to things. We see this family struggle, 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 and then there's a reprieve. And they talk about how in two months or two years or whenever, things will be different and better. And some time passes, and they are better for a spell. And then struggle, 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 reprieve, until what we eventually see is struggle, 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 and the struggle overpowering them. And that was a lot. That was a lot to watch in the last moments, the last, as I said, 20 to 30 minutes of this film for me. Yeah, you talk about trying to sell the movie, and it could be a hard sell, but I really want to do that. And maybe one way is to de-emphasize this idea of tragedy, mm -hmm. or at least how Ray handles it. You want me to go because... back and start all over? No, no. I, <laughs> Not say the T-word? Let's, let's reframe the T-word. Okay. There's death in this movie. We'll just say that. For me, though, what was most revealing is that, yeah, that, that moved me. But what wrecked me, if you want to use that word, was smaller details mm -hmm. of this family life that, although totally different time, totally different place, just felt so true to the human experience uh, and tragically true, not just because someone died. But right. let, me, let me give you an example. So the brother and sister here, Opu, and at this point, they're a little older. So Opu is played by Subir Banerjee. And the sister is played by Uma Das Gupta. They're bickering. They're fighting over, at this point, he's stolen something of hers. And uh, this is something that Ray captures, is, is how they, they play together, they fight together. Mm -hmm. And that's another rhythm, right? Yeah. That's another rhythm. So here, they're bickering over this stolen artifact. And the mother comes out, played by Karuna Banerjee, and she separates them and just says something to Durga, the older sister, you're too old for a toy box. Mm -hmm. And what Ray does is pay attention to how, and the child actors are just wonderful, they are. how they respond to that. Suddenly, even though they were just fighting, they realize that what she's done is cut this dividing line between them and separated them. The sister is now in burgeoning adolescence. Mm -hmm. Opu is still in childhood. Going to be passed off to marriage at some point. Exactly. And their little tight world, it's just a small comment. It's a small moment, but it's so huge in what it means for their life. It's it's devastating. And he captures that, the looks on the kids' faces, and just giving it that time that we recognize there's this devastating rift between them. So I guess that's what I mean is, is that this is a, a heavy movie to take. It's incredibly moving, but it's not tragic in the manipulative, no. expected way uh, that we might associate with the word tragedy. It's it's just, it's just, it's beautifully yes. depressing. It is. Yeah. And it's also not one person's story, which is sort of fascinating. You take a movie like Boyhood, where it's got this huge ensemble and everyone gets their time on screen. Everyone gets their due, I think. But ultimately, it's Mason's story. Everything is filtered through his perspective. And there is an aspect to this movie, Josh, where a lot of the magic, I think, is that it does show the world from the kid's perspective. But who's the main character of the movie? It starts out seeming like it has to be Durga, the daughter. At the beginning, she's the only one. Yeah, Apu isn't even born yet. That's right. But this is the Apu trilogy. So once Apu is born, you figure surely he's going to take center stage. But he doesn't really. And beyond the brother and sister relationship, you've got the mother who truly is the core of everything, of the family, of the house, and of the narrative, I'd argue. I'm very hesitant to initiate any discussion of feminism 
because I'm a guy, but also I'm a pretty clueless guy. But you've got a movie set in India, made in 1955. You said it was set in the 1920s. I didn't mm-hmm. even really pick up on that, to be totally honest. But this is a first-time director, too, depicting a society clearly heavily stratified along gender lines. There are set roles for women and men, and it might provide the most succinct, crushing indictment of the role women are relegated to in many societies, not just in India, not just in 1925, and not just in 1955. There's a soliloquy in this movie where she's finishing up a conversation with her husband and then really does just have this conversation with herself, with the audience, because she knows her husband isn't listening can't help her out, doesn't care anyway. And I'd play it for you here because, of course, it's better than listening to me say the lines, and especially because of the amazing performance. But since the language barrier will make that too difficult, I will give you the lines. This is my home, too. There's no one to talk to when you're not here. I'm filled with foreboding. And then the camera just gracefully comes in for a tighter close-up. You will not understand these things. You're absorbed in your work. Sometimes you get paid, sometimes you don't. I had dreams, too, about all the things I would do. And then there's this sigh. And it is almost Shakespearean in this soliloquy in terms of how powerful it is, but this notion that she is talking to the audience. And then just this reluctance of that moment of her then recognizing in that sigh Oh, but I must persevere. It doesn't matter. This is all true, but it doesn't change my current reality and the things I have to do. And like that, she's back to the real world. And that's just one of the larger societal concerns that this movie somehow manages to encompass, even though, as you said, it's a a very small story in Mm -hmm. terms of setting and and, uh, the action quote unquote, that happens. But it's also about things like the, the honor the role honor plays in this society and for this family, that opening scene where the daughter has stolen a piece of fruit from the wealthier family that lives nearby. Yeah. This family lives very much in the shadow of that wealthy family. For sure. And that just right away we see she steals the fruit. The mother of the wealthy family comes and accuses her to their their mother. Mm-hmm. And it's you can see how need is playing with honor and shame here. And those three things are going to haunt the family through really through the rest of their lives. Now, I want to go back to what you talked about uh, when you said the rhythms uh, of this family life and of domesticity, because to me, the key was the way Ray captured this in always having the camera right where it needs to be to capture exactly what is happening in that scene. There's a front porch scene where all of them, even the father, who's not there very often, uh, they're gathered together on the front porch and they're each doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. And we just get a little shot of each of them, but it captures their rhythms. We get a sense that this is what they each do Mm -hmm. at night. It's a regular thing for them. Might be the most peaceful sort of tranquil moment in the entire film, actually. Yes. The the noises, you hear the night crickets or whatever they might be but there's also a noise there and and this this is just such a beautiful moment in the film frequently we'll hear the passing train yeah. every once in a while and here we have this domesticity everything's right they're all together we hear the train and what do we cut to we get a close up of opu's face and there's just this little glimmer 
of excitement when that noise hits and you know right there he's already halfway out of the nest. Yeah. It gives us this idea of what what this kid uh, has in store for him in his future, what his dreams are at least and how they might be different than what his families were, that he's part of a new generation, that modernity is also coming into for play sure. here. Um, so, so much going on in that little scene. And, and really, we should also mention the cinematographer is Subrata Mitra, also making a debut. This is astonishing. Yeah, how about the music, the, too? Ravi Shankar. Debut, <laughs> debut for yeah. a feature film. So three things here. I mean, if we did a, you know, a top five list, top five debuts, maybe three of those slots would be taken Indeed. by people involved in this film. But the intricacy of the camera work here, there's there's the tracking shot, which you know we've seen a million times now, a variation on it when Opu is being born and the father's pacing back and forth. Yeah. Just the way the camera sticks with him. Or a little throwaway shot of uh, one of them pulling a gaggle of kittens, one yeah. of the kids out of a jar. Love that moment. And the camera's just inside the mm-hmm. jar, seeing it happen Capturing that face. from there. It, Capturing the face, exactly, because we become so attuned to these faces. And there's just a huge variety of camera techniques here, but not in the sense of someone new to filmmaking and experimenting, but someone somehow already instinctively knowing this is where it needs yeah, to be a real, to get this. There's a real magic, without a doubt, to this movie and what Ray captures. And as I was talking about the gender commentary that I think is there... I don't know enough about this movie or the culture in India to comment on how radical this movie is or this movie was. I don't know how it was regarded. But along with the gender roles, there is this general indictment, I think, of, for lack of a better phrase, the status quo. You've got, as you mentioned, Josh, the more powerful established families in town, that mother in particular. They're pretty horrible people. They lord that shame over them. And that mom's soliloquy I mentioned follows the husband explaining how they can't leave this house because it's his ancestral home. And the writing is just on the wall, I think, at that point about their future. She can see it and he can't. He even says he has a refrain he goes back to. He's a religious man. He performs some ceremonies and he says, whatever God does is for the best. And I think, Josh, the Ray here is quite definitively challenging that idea or at least challenging the idea of the status quo. Because by the time the husband realizes he can't rely on God or he can't rely on everything he's believed up to this point, guess what? It's too late. You know what? It, I've I've jumped ahead because I, I couldn't wait to Aparajito and all of what you're talking about just blossoms oh, really? even more. So, so I'll just leave that there. Uh, but I will say Auntie here brings another societal reflection in what happens to her storyline, the treatment of the elderly, too. Well, and, and I want to talk about that a little. I mean, a, a completely new, it would seem to me, way of regarding uh, someone at that point in their life without a husband uh, who does not have someone to take care of her mm-hmm. and how she is treated. I thought that, you know, that was one of the uh, you know more moving moments for sure. following where, where she goes and how they handle Again, it's not capital T tragedy. It's it's small it's handled small but for some reason carries more power because of that yeah and very early on we've touched on it the camera where it's put 
how it captures perfectly what it needs to capture in that moment and what it reflects in the perspective of the characters, especially the kids, how we see, I think that's part of the magic, how we see the world through their eyes. It always comes back in scene after scene to their reaction to something, seeing it from their point of view, then seeing how they react to it. We react because we see how they react to it. And there's this wonderful scene that's hard to watch actually, but you talk about a movie like the Babadook and a mom just finally losing her mm, yeah. patience, her rationality, whatever. There's a scene where the daughter finally is accused of stealing something and the mom can't take it anymore. She is at her boiling point and she punishes Durga and grabs her by the hair and kicks her out of the house. And the way Ray shoots it is we see sort of a split screen almost of the mom on one side of the door after she's done it and the girl going out the door and going out into the forest area. And that shot captures so much about that fractured relationship in that moment. But also I'm thinking about the train sequence. You talked about the sound of that mm-hmm. and how it's kind of luring them. Well, we do get a scene late in the film the two of where the two out. of them go yeah. out exploring and I don't think we're supposed to believe they go out looking for the train, but in going out there, they eventually find it. And we see, talking about modernity, power lines yep. in this rural forest kind of environment where you don't expect to see anything like that. They finally get out of that a little bit, and they're in this tall grass, and how tiny Apu looks in that grass. Again, kind of putting this world in his perspective, us seeing it the way he would see it, where he's just dwarfed by the tall grass. Those power lines, he goes up to it. We see them as they see him. He goes up and listens to it. He hears it. I love sort of the tactile nature of that scene in this movie. And then that notion of those ebbs and flows, again, what do they discover on the way back? This is this moment. Mm -hmm. This is a moment I think that could be read almost as a triumph for them, sort of getting out and seeing what the world looks like outside of their little shell. And it's joyous. There's some joy in it. On the way back, what do they run into? Something completely the opposite of joyous, something that is also a revelation, some kind of epiphany about life that every kid at some point is going to have to discover. But the fact that it follows that moment with the train, I don't think is any accident. And it's also something traditional. It's terrible. That's it. But it's traditional. Yeah, this whole notion of the passage of time and modern technology and them discovering that and expanding their world beyond that isolated home and that isolated village. But Part of that modern technology is people like the one they discover, dancing around a little bit, getting left behind. They don't fit. Right. They don't fit really in this new world. Those kind of natural things, these kind of natural relationships aren't necessarily going to hold over. Well, in in that sense, I hadn't thought about it until you started describing it that way. But the monsoon sequence, which comes at the end, Mm -hmm. is both devastating on a pure narrative sense, but also cleansing in a way of washing away this traditional life and pushing them further into modernity, forcing them maybe to do what they might not have otherwise because their home uh, is destroyed in the monsoon. And wow, how about the imagery during that? I mean, for for a group of filmmakers just new to the art form. Barely lucky to finish the film. It's... (laughs) But the ghostly images when the rain is pouring down and uh, it's it's just it's like from another picture mm-hmm. um, from another world, really, when that starts to happen. Also, a contrast to the really beautiful um, so much of this until the monsoon is under full daylight. So yeah. these forests, you know, there's light streaming through a lot of fi- cooking fires around that 
that lend some smoke. So it's it's sort of magical. Yeah. Even though we we see the downsides of this traditional life, it also has this magical aura too. So I don't think you could say this this is a film that's uh, completely dissecting the horrors of a rural or older lifestyle. But it's capturing that tension, I think, of of a family who's right on the edge of the change and a boy who wants to be further out on that edge yeah. of the change that's coming to to this area. I agree with you. And at the same time, I know some people in its day accused it of this, but I don't think it's either romanticizing or exploiting kind of the poverty either. I don't think it goes that far at all. It's, there too, may close be, to yeah. the, it's too close to the characters that's for true. that. Yeah, I agree. This movie is one that has been revered over the years. I should have looked this up, but as I recall, Josh, it has been placed at least at one point over the decades on the sight and sound list of the top 10 films ever made. That's how highly regarded a lot of people view this movie. In the 2012 iteration of the sight and sound poll, the critics who were part of it put it at 41st and the directors had it at 48th. So thinking about every movie that's ever been made, the fact that it is in the 40s on both those lists tells you something about the level of appreciation for this movie. And after seeing it, they're not wrong. For what it's worth, if we were to redo our top 10 list of all time, which we did around that sight and Mm -hmm. sound list, this would be on mine. That's high praise. Bold statement there from Josh. We'll see if the other movies in the marathon can live up. Wouldn't that be something if they could? You've already seen Aparaito, the second film, and the third movie, the two movies that round out the Apu trilogy. We're going to discuss those together in the next installment of this marathon in a couple weeks. If you want to follow along, you can find the list of all the movies, all six of them at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons. And we did want to point out, as many of you have possibly discovered, some of these films are kind of hard to come by. The last three we're doing, and I may have the order wrong, but the big city, the music room and the lonely wife, those all are actually available right now in criterion collection editions. So You can get those, and they look pretty good. They're also available on Hulu Plus if you have access to those. I think maybe Netflix. I'm pretty sure Netflix as well. So various ways to get the last three movies. This Apu trilogy, tougher to come by. I actually ordered them from Amazon. There's like one set you can buy, and the transfers aren't necessarily that great, but that's what I found. I know you got it from the library system. Well, I no, I do have the Amazon set too, okay. which isn't it isn't bad. It's I mean, it's not the best, but considering uh, you know all the things that we were able to pick up on seeing that, but yeah, searching the local Chicagoland library system at least, there are some available. Mm-hmm. Some look like they were this same transfer, some other sets, so it might be a little hit or miss. But that's always a good route to go by. Try your library. The esteemed Sam Van Hallgren just watched this, rated it as you did, Josh, five stars on Letterboxd. He Very got it nice. from his local library system. So there you go. we encourage you to seek out Pather Panchali and the other Satyajit Ray films however you can. 